Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, today on the Beeson Podcast, you're in for a treat. I have the privilege of interviewing my uh, beloved colleague and wonderful friend, Dr. Lyle W. Dorsett. He is the Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism right here at Beeson Divinity School, has a wonderful background in the subject we're going to talk about, which is military chaplaincy. Lyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Honored to be here. Now, I wish I had a whole podcast just to talk about Lyle Dorsett, your story, how you became a Christian, how God has led you and worked through you across the years is just remarkable, and we'll have to do that. You came to Beeson how many years ago? I'm starting my eighth year. And before that, you were at Wheaton College for many years, right? College for 20 years. And serving the Lord, you're not only a professor, but you also are a pastor uh, of Christ the King Anglican Church, which meets right here in our own Beeson Divinity School Chapel. So God has multi-gifted you and blessed you in lots of ways. But one of the things I want to focus on today is your work as a historian. Tell us a little about your training and some of your early interests uh, working as a historian of American history. Well, I've been interested in history for years, and I have I did my undergraduate and master's degrees in history and then did a Ph.D. in history at the University of Missouri. Where And one of the reasons I went to Missouri is it was the, the professor there that I wanted to work under was a, an authority on Harry Truman, and he's, he's still alive. He's a retired professor, um, a Truman scholar, and so all of the people that did their Ph.D. with him worked at the Truman Library mm-hmm. and were involved in that Truman era at some time. And so my dissertation, which became my first book, was related to that period, and I have never lost interest in my love for history. But God, after my conversion, called me into ministry, but I've I've always maintained my interest in history, and now I have the added dimension of ministry and evangelism, which the Lord called me to. And this book was an opportunity, really, to try to to, to sort of wed two great yeah. loves. You mentioned your book on Harry Truman, which was highly uh, acclaimed, well reviewed at the time, and continues to be a standard study in the field. Was that what opened up the whole era of World War II as an area of interest to you? Yeah, well, that book on Truman was really a history of the Pendergast machine, the political machine that elevated Truman to the Senate. And then, of course, from there, he became vice president. What got me interested, uh, first of all, as a little boy in World War II, and then growing up, you know, I was surrounded by veterans. But catalytic was that my uncle fought in World War II, and he was always a, a great hero to me. And he's buried at Leavenworth National Cemetery, highly decorated World War II veteran. And he came home from the war, and when at one point he gave me all of the souvenirs he'd brought home. Well, that just, you know, here's a young guy interested in following maps, tracing armies around, and it, it just was, it was a great love, and it became a scholarly interest. That's how it all got going. Well, we're going to talk about your new book in just a moment, but first tell our listeners about 
this remarkable, one-of-a-kind World War II museum that you have in your home. I've been privileged to visit that on one occasion, and I have to say it was a remarkable uh, collection of things you have there. Say a little bit about that, what's in it, and why you have it. The museum has really about three purposes. One is to preserve artifacts and documents and photographs, uniforms, all kinds of memorabilia from the war so it doesn't end up in trash heaps. But even more important than that, the museum is there to honor and commemorate the men and women who served. There were 12.5 million American men and women in uniform during World War II throughout the war. To thank them for giving, at minimum, the best years of their lives. Many of them gave their lives so we can be free. But beyond that, the museum is there to bring glory to God. And the scriptures tell us, to whom much is given, much is required. And we Americans have been given freedom. And we have a stewardly responsibility. And I think that we need to, uh, I love to bring, I bring all my classes there. My wife feeds them with cookies and tea, and and uh, I give them a tour of the museum and show them our library. And I tell them, you know, we always pray for those who served when yeah. we're there and to thank God for them and try to encourage the next generation to say, be grateful for what you've got. Today, we choose to read and speak German or Japanese. If we'd lost that war, we'd have been forced to do it. Now, lest anybody misunderstand, I want you to make clear, because it is clear, that the purpose of your museum and of your whole interest here is not to glorify war. It's not to sort of magnify, you know, the violence and the evil of war, and there's lots of that around, but it's to see something of the valor the sense of duty that compelled people, actually on all sides, to often give the supreme sacrifice in what uh, was a horrible conflict in human history. That's right. I mean, the uh, we had approximately one half a million, 500,000 people killed in World War II. And of course, the Germans and Russians lost much more than that. Uh, uh, the British lost a lot. But no, no one in their right mind would glorify war. But yet, people served so that we could be free to stop Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany with all the things they were doing. And it, 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 freedom is not free. Yeah, there's a price to be paid. That's right. Well, the book we're going to talk about is called Serving God and Country, U.S. Military Chaplains in World War II. And it's a beautifully produced book. I think uh, folks who buy this book, there's a section of photographs, a beautifully uh, produced uh, a book with great uh, readable type. I like it. And it's a fascinating account of military chaplains in World War II. Now, clergy could not be drafted, so how did the military find its chaplains at that time? Well, that was, uh, that was a big challenge because all clergy and ministerial students were draft exempt. So when, and during World War II, everybody understood because we were a nation steeped in a Judeo-Christian tradition, even if everybody wasn't faithful, you know, at deep levels. That was our cultural tradition. And they knew that if we were going to sustain a war, we needed chaplains. We needed chaplains to please the people on the home front who wondered what's going to happen to my boy or what's going to happen to my husband. Are they going to have any spiritual care? And then the military, especially the older uh, seasoned veterans who'd been in World War I, realized unless you can keep morale up and keep the spiritual temperature normal and strong, you, you can't sustain the conflict. 
And so they wanted chaplains. So they had to, because they couldn't draft, they set certain minimum criteria. You had to have a college degree and a seminary or divinity school degree. So you're talking, you know, seven years, roughly, maybe eight years of college training, university training. Plus, they preferred one to two years of experience in the pastorate. So you're talking about some people with nine to ten years of training, you know, that they're going to be considerably older than the typical draftee who's come into the war. Then they turned it over to the various denominations and traditions to set their criteria for whom would come in. And, of course, they couldn't draft either, but immediately people would volunteer. So, say, the Southern Baptists had their criteria, the Free Methodists did, the Roman Catholics did, the Jewish uh, communities did. And so uh, somebody would uh, volunteer. They'd start with their own organization, their own denomination, get recommendation there, and then go into the military. But even once they made it through all that, they had to go to chaplain school. Typically, that was a month. It changed over time, but it usually was four weeks uh, for the Army. The Navy was a couple of three weeks longer for the one reason only. The Navy Department had chaplains who would serve the Marine Corps and the Navy. So if you're going to be a chaplain like, say, Carol Lemons in there, the man you mentioned earlier, a Southern Baptist from uh, Topeka, Kansas, he had to know how to deal with troops on the ground. He had to know how to work with the Marines. He also needed to, to be able to serve on, on a ship mm -hmm. or at a naval air station on, on the home front. And so they had to have a little more training. The Army had more uh, focus uh, in one area, so they could uh, keep it to a month, but the Navy increased it. And one of the things in your book that was fascinating to me, you point out that very often in the thick of the battle, it was uh, a chaplain who reached the person who had been wounded on the front lines, even before the medics got there. The chaplains, one of the things that really surprised me as I got into this topic, and when I started the, doing the research, I didn't know all that much about it. I mean, there wasn't that much written. There was a good book by uh, Donald Crosby, a Jesuit uh, who's passed away now, unfortunately, published a book called Battlefield Chaplains, Catholic Chaplains in World War II. Superb book. But aside from that, I didn't know that much. There just hasn't been that much written. I was surprised to learn that the mortality rate for example, in the U.S. Army, the Army Air Corps had the highest per capita killed in action rate. Number two, though, was the Chaplain Corps. That astounded me. But then as I got into it, I learned so many of these chaplains wanted, insisted being on the front lines with the men. They wanted to minister to them. They wanted to walk with them. There's a retired general. He was a, a young lieutenant in World War II. He lives here in Birmingham, General Henry Cobb, and I interviewed him. And he has a great recollection. He was an Episcopalian, and he wanted to get Holy Communion, especially before he went into combat. And he remembered the day that he took his platoon into the thick of things at the Battle of the Bulge, that he wanted... Uh, he wanted communion, so he went to the Catholic chaplain. And they didn't card you during the war to say, are you a Catholic or not? And he, so he'd received Holy Communion. Anyway, he went up into the front, had a bad wound on his thigh, but he was coming off the line to get that patched up, and he wanted to get back to his men. And he said, lo and behold, coming running towards him at kind of a crouch was this chaplain who had given him communion about two or three hours earlier. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, I said to him, Chappie, where in the world do you think you're going? You can't go up there. The Germans are leveling things with these 88s and mortars. People are dying all over the place. And he said, that man looked up at me and said, then that's precisely where I need to be. Hmm. And he charged into, into the firelight. These guys were all over the place. And they always wanted to be with the troops, comforting them, giving them last rites, praying with them as they were dying, comforting them until a medic could get there. And they weren't armed, of course. And one of the things you point out is how many of the troops in that time of battle and struggle found faith through the work of chaplains. And there were many conversions that happened through the work of the chaplains in World War II. That's right. When people feel that their lives are at a very fragile point, they tend to get serious about what's going to happen on the other side. And I found numerous cases of chaplains who, by the way, I've found over 80 autobiographies of chaplains. Some of them are as rare as hen's teeth because they're self-published. And, you know, they have a limited audience. But I'd read these things, and these men would frequently talk about how many men wanted to be baptized, how many men wanted to give their lives to Christ because they knew there was a real good chance they weren't going to survive. You know, often it's in time of war that there is something of a religious revival. There was in the Civil War. That's right. A great moving of the spirit among the troops, uh, both North and South, actually, during the Civil War. And so something of that sense, you know, there's a saying, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, uh, but it does have a way of concentrating attention on matters of time and eternity. Oh, it does indeed. In fact, uh, Chaplain Cosby, who was the founder of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., a very good church, Gordon Cosby, and he wrote an autobiography. And in that autobiography, he tells about he was with the 101st Airborne Division, And he's hunkered down in Bastogne when, I mean, their guys are being killed all over the place. And the Germans are telling, hey, we're going to level the place and kill all of you if you don't surrender. And, of course, uh, their their general, McAuliffe, said nuts when they Mm -hmm. came and, and asked. But he tells the story. He said one night he was checking the company list to see how many men had been killed that day. And he was marking it. And he said he was going around talking to the men that were alive. He said he got into a foxhole with this one man and said, can I pray for you? Is there anything I can do? And he said, chaplain, I'll tell you what you can do for me. I know I'm going to die tomorrow. And he said, I want you to tell me what's going to be on the other side because I'm frightened. And he said, well, he said he got ready to speak. And the man said, don't give me any of your theology. I don't want any philosophy. I don't want a sermon. I want you to speak truth to me. I'm going to die tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And he said at that moment, and he led that man to Christ. He prayed with him, led him to Christ. And he said he realized then, in fact, he told the Lord, if you let me live, I'll never preach the same way again. Hmm. I'm going to talk as Baxter did, you know, a dying man to dying men. Yes. And so uh, it was, a, it was wow. a great story. But wow. those kinds of things happened continually in that war. One of the great things about your book, maybe unique, uh, is the way in which you bring together the accounts of Protestants, Catholics, and Jewish chaplains, all of them in service to these uh, soldiers that were and airmen and sailors who were in their care and their spiritual custodianship. Uh, say a little bit about the, the sort of the ecumenical tenor of your book and how it was you were able to bring these three great religious traditions, all of whom were involved in chaplaincy, uh, into a coherent story. 
Well, that, that's an important question, and it was one of the things I discovered when I got into it. There's no way to tell the story without recognizing that those three traditions were inextricably tied together during the war. And this was one of the purposes of the chaplain schools. They would teach these men to learn from one another about their traditions because they said out there in combat, you're going to be, you know, a Protestant's going to have to minister to Jewish and Catholic guys and vice versa with all the others. And there are wonderful stories. One of the chaplains, a Jewish chaplain said, in his autobiography, which is one of the best ones out there, and it's been published and was fairly widely read at the time among Jewish people, called With an H on my dog tag for Hebrew. Mm -hmm. He said, I had never met a Catholic priest and talked to him before chaplain school. I had never met a Protestant minister. And he said most of the clergy would admit that, that because today we're used to some interaction and some healthy ecumenism, but during that time there was a great deal of distance and distrust and even uh, disdain for these other traditions. Well, they're forced to learn how to get along, and they're going to have to care for one another's people. And they, uh, they learned to do it, and they did it well. Now, you just mentioned a moment ago about the H on the dog tag. I, it occurred to me some of our listeners may not know what a dog tag is and why there were H's and P's and C's on the dog tags, I guess, of every enlisted person, right? Every enlisted and officer. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a dog tag. And that's they just called them dog tags like a dog's license to show he had his, had his shots, I guess. But it had the name, depending upon the stage of the war, it might have their mother's name and address on it or their father's because that was a way to notify somebody if they'd been killed. But they would have down in the corner, they would have a P, a, a C, or an H for Hebrew, Catholic, or Jewish. And they also would have uh, their blood type mm -hmm. and they'd have their serial number. Everybody wore two dog tags. If you were killed... Usually a chaplain or someone would take one of those tags and then bury the remains with the other one. And they'd make notes and say, this is where we buried these guys. They tried to keep very careful yeah. track of where, where the men were buried. And I've been to some military cemeteries in England and elsewhere where clearly you see the Star of David on a whole row of uh, grave markers uh, right. indicating that they had an H on their dog That's right. tag. So, That's right. But chaplains played a role in that in a kind of delicate transition time in life and death. Say a little bit about the role of the chaplains uh, as the Allied forces began to move, especially into Europe and liberated the concentration camps where so many atrocities had happened. What was the role of the chaplains in that process? Well, the role of the chaplains uh, w was, was variegated, and it was very interesting. In fact, if I may, I'd like to comment as they rolled into Europe once they got in the beachhead in Normandy and began to roll in and you go through France and Belgium and Luxembourg and get into Germany, well, you're in heavily Catholic country. And I even found one young man wrote to his mother. He happened to be a Protestant, but occasionally he'd go to a Catholic chaplain because that was all he could have access to where he happened to be. And he said, you know, this Catholic church reminds me of Standard Oil Company. They got a station on every corner. <laughs> and he talked about those churches everywhere you would look. But aside from that, uh, these chaplains, they felt a responsibility not only to care for the combatants, their own American troops, 
but they also would increasingly feel a need to try to help refugees. Mm -hmm. And the farther they moved into toward Germany, the more refugees there were. And the conditions of these people were horrid. Many of them were wounded, some of them were hungry, mm -hmm. they were without proper clothing. So the chaplains were continually trying to gather food, clothing, and get medical care for them. They also, when they started liberating the, the concentration camps, they're finding American troops that have been incarcerated who now need to be cared for. So they've still got their battalion that they're traveling with. Now they've got American prisoners that they're dealing with. And then they get inside and they'll find Jewish people in there, mm -hmm. many of them sick, starving. Mm -hmm. For the Jewish chaplains in particular, this became one of the most heartbreaking and difficult things because increasingly the refugees were Jewish. Increasingly, as they got into these camps, the, they found the evidence, of course, of six million Jews being annihilated. Mm -hmm. And the ones that were survivors would fall on these chaplains and beg them, don't leave us. We haven't had a rabbi for two years, three years, however long they'd been there. We, would you stay and minister to us? So then the chaplain's torn. Do I keep moving out with my men or do I stay here and care for these people that haven't had any Jewish religious care? And sometimes they'd seek permission to stay behind for a week or so. And these people were, you know, they were without clothes. They were malnourished. They were sick and dying. And so they're torn between helping refugees, helping their own troops, and then helping people that are in these camps. Uh, the, the weight of this, this helps explain why 50% of the Jewish rabbis in the United States during World War II volunteered and became chaplains. Mm. And they would say, you know, all of us chaplains have a motive to protect our country because we, we want freedom, we want to preserve it. Mm. But they, they would say, but we Jewish chaplains, we got a second thing to fight for, and that's the preservation of our people. Well, I want to shift from uh, the history that we've been talking about that you write about so interestingly and ably in this book, Serving God and Country. I want to shift from that, the past, to the present. Uh, we both uh, are working here at Beeson Divinity School, and as you know, a number of our own students have responded to the call to chaplaincy. And many of them have gone forth, and they're serving in every one of the uh, branches of the armed forces of the United States today. And uh, many of them have been very close to you as a mentor and friend. And I wonder if you'd just comment a little bit about our students who are now chaplains, the challenges they face, uh, maybe a word, maybe some of them are listening to this uh, podcast, and a word of encouragement perhaps to them or to others who are in similar situations. Well, these chaplains today, and I just think of some immediately, uh, Nathan White, who was with us, he's, he's uh, with the Army, he's with the 101st right now. In fact, I think in, next week he heads out to Afghanistan for a second deployment. He's an Ar Army chaplain. Kalen Clay, mm -hmm. Navy chaplain, is now serving with the Marines and Navy SEALs and Special Ops out in uh in Central Asia. Jim Dewey, who graduated with us, has been a chaplain to the 2nd Marines, and he's now on, the last I heard from him, he was on a ship on the high seas, helping to keep the seas open. And uh, then there was uh, 
Tim Shepard, he's an army chaplain now, he's in Afghanistan, and the list goes on and on. And these men are missionaries to those in the military. And they're very much, they're as much a missionary as, as William Carey was, just in a different place and a different time. And I uh, have been privileged, as you have, Dr. George, to play a tiny role in preparing these people to go into their ministry. And one of the, my prayers as I did the book was that this book would not only encourage our contemporary chaplains, and they might learn some things on how to care for men, and I'd just add parenthetically, and that is they cared for them one man at a time. You know, they cared for them personally. They had that personal touch like Jesus did, mm -hmm. touching them, listening to them, caring for them. Not only to encourage them, but maybe to stir up a calling in some other men and women today who might see the, the military as a mission field. It's a tremendous mission field. Mm -hmm. There's a huge need. Absolutely. So that's been one of my prayers for yeah. this. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to close our podcast by praying for uh, particularly our Beeson students who are serving in the chaplaincy, and really all chaplains, uh, because uh, we should undergird them in our prayers. It's a spiritual struggle as well as all of the military aspect of it. Uh, but I want to say thank you for being here today. Uh, thank you for your service to Jesus Christ through uh, your work as the Billy Graham Professor here at Beeson Divinity School for your scholarship. We've been talking about your more, most recent book, but uh, you've actually written more than 20 books, and a number of them are, are great biographies of people like C.S. Lewis and D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, great figures in the history of the, of the church and spirituality. And I want you to come back, and we'll talk about some of those uh, wonderful books. But I'm glad you've written this book, For God and Country, U.S. Military Chaplains in World War II. I encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of it, to read it. It's a grisly story in a way. There's a lot of uh, suffering and violence and death, but at the same time, there's hope interlaced in each one of these pages as chaplains are pointing uh, men in World War II uh, beyond their circumstances to the one who can truly give hope. So thank you for this book. And will you take a few minutes now and just let's pray together for uh, particularly our Beeson students and others in the chaplaincy. Lord Jesus, we come before you this afternoon and I just thank you for the privilege of being able to have uh, written this book, to dig into the lives and the service of of. 12,000 chaplains approximately who served in World War II. And Lord, I pray that their story will encourage our chaplains today. I pray that their story will not only strengthen those who are missionaries on the military field today, but that young men and women might hear this story and hear you call them. Lord, we, we ask you in the spirit of, of Matthew 9 to raise up workers. Lord, there's a harvest field in the military. Would you please raise up workers for this harvest field? And please, Lord, bless and protect our friends that we know who are the chaplains, but also those other chaplains that we don't know and also to protect the men and women in uniform scattered all over this globe many of whom don't know you, many of whom are so confused and lost. So, Lord, do your work for your glory, and thank you for this time. Thank you for Dr. George. Bless him and protect him. 
as he continues to lead this divinity school so that we can help equip men and women to proclaim your truth through preaching the word and also to learn how to be a worshipful people who follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Lyle Dorsett. Thank you for your prayer and for this wonderful conversation. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.